Shall we pray together? Father, we lift up this beautiful song to you this morning. Thank you for being the God whom the choir just sang about. Holy, holy, holy is your name. And you are the one who sanctifies your people and the church. Lord, we also lift up ourselves to you this morning. Would you use this hour to share the joy that you have for the world? Speak to our hearts and remind us of the purpose and the calling of our life. In your mighty and holy name we pray, amen. amen. If someone asks me which passage of the scripture I'll read for him or for her if I had only one chance to read, today's passage is the one that I'll choose, Luke 15, a story that Jesus told about the prodigal family. I'm deeply indebted to my seminary professor from whom I'm borrowing much of the content and ultimately uh, Dr. Kenneth Bailey who taught at ABTS in Beirut, Lebanon, as he was the one who first introduced me to the beauty and the necessity of the cultural reading of this particular passage. The story, the parable, when it's read in its original context, which is the ancient Near Eastern cultural context, speaks to us more vividly and even more powerfully. So the background of the story is introduced in Luke 15, chapter, uh, chapter 15, verses 1 through 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told this parable. We must remember that Jesus told this story primarily in the context of justifying his actions before the Pharisees and the scribes. Remember that the Pharisees and the scribes were criticizing Jesus for sitting and eating with the tax collectors and sinners. They, they were judging Jesus' action as shameful and scandalous. And by the way, who are the Pharisees and the scribes? The scribes were, were those who studied and taught the laws to the people of God. They were professional theologians of the day. Their role was to transmit and protect the laws of God and all other traditions associated with them. And the Pharisees were the devout lay leaders of the day. They were the elders, ministry leaders, and the Sunday school teachers. They were committed to obey the laws of God. Although the Pharisees were often criticized by Jesus about their misconduct in the gospel narratives, we must not quickly dismiss their concerns. They were well-motivated people. They wanted to be holy. They wanted to be pleasing to God. They wanted other people to be holy and pleasing to God. They wanted to help other people to be holy and pleasing to God. They wanted to keep the holiness of God in the house of Israel. This is crucial to remember when we read these parables. The Pharisees and the scribes thought of themselves as the protectors of the laws, the protectors of the reputation of the Israel's holy God. And as far as they were concerned, Jesus of the Nazareth was shaming the reputation of the holy God. Why? Because Jesus was sitting and eating with the sinners. It is a virtuous thing to feed the hungry and the need people. Uh, we, we, you'll be praised for doing so. But you can't sit with them 
on the same table. It is never okay in the ancient Middle Eastern culture to eat with them on the same table. Because in the culture, and also in some Asian cultures, to eat with a person on the same table means that the person is totally accepting the other person. Eating together means total acceptance. It's a symbol of brotherhood and sisterhood. It's like saying we are now brothers and sisters. And a scandal of scandals, this man eats with sinners and tax collectors. You know, sinners are rejected people. Sinners are not holy. They are bad because they are dishonoring the holy God of Israel. But look what Jesus is doing in the story. Jesus is eating with them. This is a shame to the holy God. Jesus is protecting the sinners, those lawbreakers. Shame to God, shame to God. Pharisees and the scribes are shouting. It's a blasphemy, Jesus. Jesus, you are dishonoring the holy God by claiming that you are the Son of God. Yes, okay, let's see. But at the same time, are you accepting the sinners, thereby making our holy God the father of the sinners? So it's on this tension that Jesus tells these three parables, three parables in the whole chapter. And first of these is the parable of a lost sheep. It's a story about a shepherd who seeks for the one lost sheep over the other 99 and joy, joy, joy rejoices when it's found. And second of these is the parable of a lost coin, a woman who sweeps the entire house to search for a lost coin and joy, joy, joy rejoices when she found it. And the third of these is the parable of two sons. And it is often called a, the parable of the, of the prodigal son, right? But please let me ask this question. Who were the main characters in the first two parables? Was the main character the lost sheep and the lost coin? Or the shepherd and the woman who looked for the lost? It's the latter, right? Then it is very appropriate to consider that the focus and the main character of this third parable is the father. He is the main character. It's the prodigal father's story. Here Jesus draws the true picture of the father almighty. How Jesus is picturing the father almighty through this parable is, is the main message of the parable. And surprise, surprise, everything that Jesus pictures about the father almighty in this parable is scandalous. As every single action of the father in the story is unexpected and shocking in light of the Middle Eastern culture. Verses 11 and 12. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Wow, this is a shocking request from the second son because this request implies a death wish for the father. In the ancient Middle Eastern culture, saying, give me my portion, give me my inheritance, means equal to saying, Father, I want you to die now. Let's not pretend that you died already. I do not have a father any longer. It's about breaking the relationship with the father, denying the existence of the father. What do we learn from this? 
What does this tell about the nature of sin? Sin is not merely about doing wrong things. The sin of the second son is not about just about wasting the father's money or playing with the prostitute or doing wrong things. It is essentially about leaving the father. Living as if he didn't have the father. That's what hurt the father the most. In the ancient Middle Eastern culture, first of all, such thing can never happen. But if some, for some reason such thing happens, it was expected that the father beats up the son. Not only the father, but the whole village could beat him up as the second son gave shame to the father, to the household, and to the village. If you were the father, how would you respond to the son's request? Would you say, you are now well grown up, son? Something like this. Read what this father in the story does. So he divided his property between them. So he divided his property between them. The father let the son go. It's a scandalous love of the father. The father knows what it's, what, what's going to happen if he gave the money to the son. Nevertheless, the father divided the property. Why? What's the cause? No rationale can fully explain why he had to choose to do so except the reason called love. How the father have felt at the giving? Was he angry? Was he happy? Was he cursing? He is obviously hurt by the one who chooses to leave him. But nevertheless, he does not block the son's choice. He honors the freedom and choice. If you are a father or a mother, you know what this means. There are moments in which you grant, grant even immature choices that your children make. You know, it's not the best choice, but you choose to let it happen because of love. And what kind of love is this? Consider what the village, village people would say about the father and about the family. Shame. Shameful. But you know what? This father was ready to accept even the shames that this son caused because of the love for the son. This is a mysterious love of the God, the father. So the son got excited to have received the inheritance so not long after that, the son, the younger son, got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. There were, there were reasons why he was so quick to leave the village and leave the country. Of course, it was because he was excited uh, for having the money to spend overseas. But more importantly, he had to quickly leave the village because of the village people's cynical attitudes towards him. Imagine how others would have felt and reacted about this son's action. The whole village must have criticized him. They were perhaps swearing in front of him. So he quickly left the village. But see what happens next in verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. 
Now, he was faced with a national economic crisis, and he was, he's led to become broke. There was nothing he could do. The situation was beyond his control. So he began to ask for people's help. Verses 14, uh, 15 and 16. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, a Gentile, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pot that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. You know, what a shame. Why? In the ancient Middle Eastern cultures and many Asian cultures, we never say no directly to other people's requests. That's improper and impolite and a shame to the requester. Therefore, when people want to say no, they choose to offer something that the requester will not accept. In other ways, they say no in indirect ways. The second son is in the story. Second son in the story is, must be a Jewish person. And what is the cultural connotation of pigs in Jewish culture? Unclean. So the son asked, Can you help me? Do you want to feed the pigs? Meaning, No, I don't want to help you. <laughs> That's the unspoken but actual conversation. But this son, knowing all these conversations, takes the job. What a shame. And also notice the nuance of the last sentence. No one gave him anything. No one gave him anything. Isn't this strange? He could have just taken the pods himself. It connotes a total rejection. A total rejection from the people, from the community, total despair. Yes, he's living, still living and still breathing, but he's just invisible. Nobody cares. Worthless living, meaningless so what can he do? What can this guy do? Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I'm starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father. So the second son remembers the father. Hallelujah. He remembers his father. He decides to go back to the father because he remembers the tenderness of the father. Notice the first sentence, he came to his senses. Its literal translation is he came back to himself. He came back to himself. That's right. He remembers who he used to be or who he is supposed to be. You see, repentance is not just about a regret or a remorse of what I did wrong. Repentance is about to go back to the real self. Repentance is to go back to the real self, who I'm supposed to be. But didn't he once make the death wish for the father? Oh, he realizes how troublesome he was. So on his way back, he tries to come up with a confessional speech for the father as, as any um, child who did wrong to the parents. He makes up the sentence. So verse 18, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. The son's confession has three parts. How many? Three parts. First, Father, I have sinned against the heaven and against you. And what is he saying? 
confession of sins. He's admitting that I am a sinner. And what is his sin? Wasting the money, a wild life? Yes, but more than anything is that he has left the Father, throwing out and dumping the Father from his life. That's what hurt the most. Second, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. What is he saying? He's affirming and accepting the consequence of the sin, that he cannot be a child of the Father any longer. And third, make me like one of your servants. What is he saying? He's suggesting his own makeup solution to pay back the debt that he owed to the Father. First, confession of sins. Second, admitting the consequence of the sins. And third, a reasonable makeup solution. Like any child who has done wrong, this son must have repeated this well-made speech numerous times on his way back. And what do you think the father should say? What should the father do about this second son? What's about to happen is something that he has never anticipated. Verse 20, so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Look what the father is like, surprise. While the second son was still a long way off, his father saw him. It's not the son who first saw the father, but the father saw the son first. How did that happen? What does that imply? This father, whom the second son denied before, has been waiting for the son to come back every day at the gate of the village, waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for the son to come back. Why? Because he wanted his money back now? Because he wanted to punish him now? No, because he missed him. Because he loves him. Because he longs to see him back. That's the father's heart. So the father saw him first. You see, that's the hope that Christians have. Do you have family members or friends who do not know the Lord. Hear the hope promised. The Father is watching and waiting for them at the gate of the village, wanting to punish them, watching to condemn for their wrongdoings. No, watching them with the hope to see them return, waiting and waiting. The burning heart, the zeal of the Father, that is our hope. But he's not done yet. Filled with compassion, the father ran to his son. What? He did what? He ran to his son. The old man ran to his son. In the ancient Middle Eastern culture, noble man never run. People like this father never run. Running is a shameful action. Why? In order to run, man have to lift up um, the, the hem of the front robe, and that makes them inevitably expose their undergarment and their inner legs and inner thighs. That's a shame. Noble people never run. But this father runs. 
He's not afraid of being ashamed. Why? Because he wants his money back? No, because the Father, the Almighty God, is afraid. This Almighty God who created the universe is afraid of letting the Son go again. So the Father runs quickly. But there's another reason for his running. There's another reason for him to be unafraid of his chains. It is to protect the returning son. Imagine what's going to happen when the son comes back to the village gate. The villagers will swear at him. Other villagers may throw stones at him. They will try to beat him up for what he has done. Knowing this, the father waits at the gate of the village and runs towards him, being unafraid of taking the shame. He covers the son with his garment, and it is to protect the returning son and to bring the child home safe. This is our Father God, unafraid of taking the shames for our sake. Then he threw his arms around the son and kissed him again and again and again, meaning in the culture the father is forgiving and accepting the son. And now what? The second son begins the well-prepared speech. Verse 21, the son said to him, First, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Is it done with his prepared speech? No, he still has the third line to say, but you know what? The father cuts the son's speech. He did not listen to the third part of his excuse, namely his own makeup solution, because that was unnecessary. This is how the father responds. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, quick, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fat in the calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Wow, the returning son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. But the father responds, bring the best robe and put it on him. Best robe. It's the story of the Genesis 3, where God made the garments of skin for Adam and Eve. What's the best robe in the house? It's the father's robe. The father's transmitting the shame unto himself and covering the son with his honor and glory. And the returning son said, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father responds, put a ring on his finger. It's a ring to seal with authority. To the one who admits the consequence of sins, the father bestows restoration and his authority. And the returning son was going to say, make me like one of your servants, his own makeup solution. But the father responds, put sandals on his feet. You see, servants never wore sandals in Israel. They were bare feet. So the father is saying, son, you are not my servant. You are still my child. You know, whenever we decide to return to the Father, this is exactly how He is going to respond to us. Unconditional grace, overwhelming gift, and total, literally total acceptance. When we commit sin every day, we commit sins every day in our thoughts, in our minds, 
in our words, in our actions. And as they accumulate, we may be continuously putting ourselves into the pits of guilt and shame, resulting in seeing ourselves as worthless and ashamed. And because of that, we may be slowly and slowly walking away from the Father. By any chance, isn't this where you are now? Let us not try to suggest our own makeup solution before God. He's going to cut that part. But just come home. Come to the Father. You know what? It is okay to come back again. Come to Jesus. He will forgive us. Not only forgive us, accept us and cleanse us, sanctify us. Can you imagine that he will sanctify us? He'll put his garments of grace and holiness onto your life. You know, it is still our choice whether we want to keep, live, keep living as a solitary orphan or as a child of the forgiving, loving Father. When we come back, some people might put their fingers at us saying, shame and shame. You're not worthy of that. You are not that kind of person yet. I know you have failures. But don't be afraid. The Father will protect us at the village gate. Come to the Father. He accepts you as you are. You don't have to prove your worth. You are worthy of His love because there's an image of God in you. And because the Father forgave and accepted the Son, the whole village people who might have planned to throw stones at him, changed their minds and also forgave and accepted the son. They celebrated together. They sat and ate together, sitting and eating together. That's the kingdom of God. That's the church. And this was exactly what Jesus was doing with the tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was sitting and eating, celebrating with them, because Jesus knew the Father loves them. Remember that Jesus was telling this story in the context of the Pharisees and the scribes, criticizing Jesus for eating and uh, sitting with sinners. And by now we know that whereas the second son referred to the sinners whom Jesus ate with, the first son in the story was referring to the Pharisees and the scribes, you see. Verses 25, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. You know, on the day his brother left home, this older brother made his mind. This guy is no longer my brother. The first son was shocked when he saw his father and the whole village sitting and eating with his brother. He was extremely happy, extremely angry and furious. Don't you resonate with this guy? He served the whole day working in the field for his father. He felt it was unfair for his brother to be treated like equal to himself. He worked hard, whereas his brothers spent all the money shaming the father's house and the father's name. The Pharisees, the Pharisees and the scribes were angry and furious. They did, not, they, they did their best 
in keeping every single rule and regulation, 613 laws of the Old Testament, wishing that this will please God. But how can this Jesus accept and eat with these sinners who broke the laws and shamed the Father's name? So this son, this is what the first son did, verse 28. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. He refused to go in. Why? It's because the younger brother shamed the father's house and the father's reputation in the whole village. He doesn't feel like rejoicing at this moment and he would rather stay outside the party. Wow, what a, what a shame to the house of the father. Think about this. In the ancient Middle Eastern culture, the first son is the most important person in the house beside the father. In an occasion like this, the first son was expected to welcome the guest and serve the guest on behalf of the father as a representative of the, of the house. Of course, he was expected to be in the party. If he is angry, he could have postponed his emotion until the end of the party, but he, what, look what he is doing. He's refusing to go in. He's not even rejoice, joining the party. Do you think the guests did not notice this? Of course they did. The whole guest, whole town know what's going on. What a shame. All those guests know that the first son is angry with the father. And what a dishonor and shame to the family once again. The first son was shaming the father in public. And what an irony. He's shaming the father because he hates his brother who shamed the father. A scandal of scandals. What does the father do about this son this time? Again, verse 28, so his father went out and pleaded with him. What? Just like he ran to the village gate for the second son, this father rises again from his seat in front of everybody and comes out of the house for his second first son. All the guests already knew why the father's going out of the house. What a shame to the family. But this father is unafraid of taking this shame for his first son. Why? It's because this son is more important to him than anything else at that moment. Then the father pleads with the first son to go into the party. The party. To go into the house. To go into the father's forgiving and loving heart for the second son. Then this is the first son's response, verse 29. But he answered to his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But look how he calls his brother. When this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home. You killed a fattened calf. His word actually makes a very good sense. You see, the Pharisees and the scribe did their best to keep the laws. That wasn't easy, you know. How can this Jesus treat them just like those sinners? That's unfair. But look carefully about what this son's saying. The son is saying, I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. 
Look at the expressions. Slaving for you, never disobeying your orders. This is not what fathers would want to hear from their sons. This is what they might want to hear from their slaves. Do you see this tragedy? This first son has always been near the father, always in the house, always working for the father, for the glory of the father, reputation of the house. But what a tragedy. He has never lived a moment as a child. He has been living like a slave. But look how the father addresses the son in the next verse. My son. You know, it's a very tender and affectionate word. This technon in Greek means my child, my babe, my child. The father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But, and, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, you see, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. How did the father address the son, my son? My son, my daughter, my child. No matter what your images and expectation of God is, the Father, first of all, wants us to be His children, His sons and daughters, not slaves. You know, salvation is about becoming a child, rejoicing as God's child, not slaves. And please allow me to ask this question. Are you really a child of God? Are you really a child of God? Are you really living as a child of God? You know, it's very difficult to fully understand. It's very difficult to fully understand why the father is doing what he is doing about the second son. There are so many reckless Christians, immature, immoral ones, and yet, God is still calling them my beloved child, my beloved church. It's really hard to understand. But there's one way, there's just one way in which everything eventually makes sense. It is to come into the Father's heart. It is when and only when we get in there that we'll be able to truly accept, embrace, and rejoice with the Father. Whereas the Father is calling the second sons to come home, to come back, He is calling the first sons to come in, to come in, come into His heart. This is what Christian life is all about, coming to the Father and coming into his heart. Joy to the world, the Savior has come, we sang. Where does joy come from? Joy to the world. We can truly rejoice when and only when we are in the Father's heart. Doesn't a true joy arise on our forgiving and accepting one another? Please let me ask one last question as we conclude. The story in Luke 15 does not end. You know, it ends in thin air, so to speak. Typically, when Jesus told such amazing stories, moving stories in the Gospels, 
The story usually ends with a phrase like, so the crowds were surprised of the wisdom of Jesus, or something like this. <laughs> but the story in Luke 15 does not have an ending. We do know from Luke 15 how the first son, we do not know from Luke 15 how the first son responded to the father's request to come into his heart. Having said that, it seems there are two possible endings to this story. One is that the son humbles himself, recognizes that he has strayed from the father's heart, agrees to come in in participa participating in the extreme joy of the father, rejoicing together for the sinner's return. But the other is that the son, not understanding why the father has to act this way in his anger and in his commitment to vindicate the village's reputation, chooses to steal the father's stick, and with the stick, he'll beat up the father to death. Let me ask you, how should the parable end? The first son, namely the Pharisees and the scribes, who has always lived for God, did all sorts of ministries for God, but never come into the heart. Stole the father's stick, and with the stick, beat up the father onto the cross. And there, this father of the scandalous love and forgiveness, who is being beaten up, makes his one last plea on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus Christ wasn't crucified by the hands of the tax collectors, prostitutes, or beggars. Jesus Christ was crucified by the hands of those who thought of themselves as those who work for God, live for God, do lots of ministries for God, preserve the reputation of the Father, but actually never understood the Father's heart. The heart of forgiveness the heart of love. How does your story end?